This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. How old were you before you learned that architects exist? Do you remember that class you took in elementary school that talked about architects and architecture? Of course you don't, because for 99% of us, that class didn't exist. Today, we're gonna be talking about the fantasy of being an architect versus the reality. Welcome to episode 72, Architectural Disconnect. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're gonna talk about how nobody really knows what architects actually do. Just laying it out there. (laughs) We plan on talking about when 12-year-olds think about becoming an architect, how does that reality align with fantasy? The exposure to architecture as a profession in lower education, which I did some good research on that to prepare for this episode. Perceived skills needed to be an architect and what is architecture school like versus a professional work environment? That's a full plate. Full plate, man. Yeah. So. So much wisdom to drop. (laughs) We're just going to be like skipping a rock across the surface. That's what it's going to be. Exactly. So look, let's just jump into this. All right. I know we're going to end up going down some rabbit holes. So who knows what this episode will look like when it's done. But let's start with what kids think about when they're 12 years old or 10 years old or whatever, and you ask about architects and architecture. So how old were you before you knew that architects were, that was a job, like that was a thing? Honest truth. Honest truth. 19. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. Wow, that's shocking. It's strange. My parents were both educators and intelligent people, but I didn't really think about it as a job or really realize it was a profession until I actually took an architectural history course my first year of college. Wow, that's surprising. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Well, maybe I just didn't pay attention, but (laughs) (laughs) But when I think back about it, because I've had to do this a few times, when I think back about it, that's really the first time I, maybe that's not the first time I heard of it, but that's the first time I ever really thought about it being an option. For you? Yeah. The story I like to tell is, you know, when I was five years old and my dad gave me a drafting table for Christmas and I <laughs> declared that I was going to cut it up and make a boat out of it, not knowing what it was. And so he's like, no, 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 this is, this is for drawing. <laughs> this is not a piece of plywood. <laughs> it's not a really sweet piece of wood, but it was, it was a yeah. nice piece of wood, super sure. smooth. So, you know, I got that piece of wood, a T-square, orange triangle, the whole thing, but he was an engineer. So I'm not sure that he was thinking... I'm going to give you the fruit of architectural future here. It could just be drafting for whatever. Yeah. But I became aware of it around that same time because of that moment. Mm. And then I met an architect when I was about 12 years old, 13 years old. And my favorite car at the time was a Porsche 928 S, you know, the one that was in risky business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He dropped it in the lake or whatever. Yeah. And this architect had a 928 S <sighs> like that convinced. I was like, oh my God. You're like, I am going to be a rich superstar. You know, I didn't have it. I didn't know what money really meant back yeah. then. Yeah. I had no concept of how hard or easy it would be to get that car. But in my mind, I'm like, architects drive sweet cars. <laughs> and I'm not even really a car guy. Yeah. But the conclusion to that kind of arc of storyline is I still remember, like, this is my second or third day in college. So I'm a freshman. And I'm taking an architecture and society class. Larry Speck was the professor. Mm -hmm. And 
It's the first time in this class, and he tells everybody he wants us to write down our five favorite architects. And I didn't know five architects. Mm-hmm. I only knew two. You want to try to guess which two I knew? I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright? Yes, that was one. And, ooh, that's when it gets tough, because I, I don't know. I'm in Dallas, so, like, think about Dallas. Yeah, I still don't know. I am pay. That okay, was it. I am pay. So I had, I had Frank Lloyd Wright and I am pay. And I had this moment of, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm in architecture <laughs> like, school. I'm chosen wrong. I can't <laughs> I don't know any architects. architects. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of, I mean, I did take a drafting class when I was in high school, but it didn't have anything to do with architecture. We drew like nuts and bolts and oil derricks and <laughs> there was no buildings. Like we yeah. never drew a building. Interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I didn't have any exposure to any of that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Lived a sheltered life. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm not sure that it's better that you went through your formative years with no knowledge about architects or architecture. And yeah. I will say, and since it's a topic for later. You know, one of the topics we wanted to get into is exposure to architecture as a profession in lower education, which saying it doesn't exist now is not true because it does exist. There are classes, there are coursework. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that in a minute. But, you know, for anyone who's, I don't know, 35 or older, if you weren't introduced to being an architect, I don't think you would have any clue as to what the day-to-day job of being an architect involved. Maybe you knew that they drew. So... For a long time, many years, every time I would get one of these, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm rudderless, what should I do with my life type of emails, those people would say, let me give you a little background information about myself. And it was the same background information that everybody wrote. I played with Lincoln Logs, you know, or I really love Legos. Legos, yeah. It's some kind of building toy that they had as a child that still resonates with them as they've gotten older, and I guess... That was what you thought. If you liked Legos, obviously you need to be an architect, you know, and maybe, I mean, I did like Legos as a kid, but again, I never made that correlation at all. So I'd never played with Legos when I was a kid. Really? I don't think I even owned Legos. They were expensive. Oh man. That's funny. I had Lincoln Logs uh-huh. and Lincoln Logs. You actually, I mean, Lincoln Logs were made to build houses like little ranches. This is true. I mean, that's like all they did. That's all that they were good for almost. Yeah. And I think Legos, when we were younger, I mean, they were just blocks. It's not like it is now. Yeah, they're not like they are today. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I'm not sure there were really any specialty pieces. And and I certainly don't remember any, like, characters, like little people. I don't remember Uh, those. Well, they were. They were just little yellow people. Like, they were one person, the same little yellow person. They just might have painted their shirt different colors. (laughs) Because I feel like most of, like, there was either regular, just plain old Legos when I was a kid, or they top of the line stuff was when they were doing space things so there was like space legos (laughs) but that was kind of it like it wasn't any of this crazy stuff like today not even close did you ever have or hear of uh erector set Mm -hmm. i had an erector set i had one of those and i think i was i don't know seventh or eighth grade i got this other toy and it was just all these little plastic i-beams and girders and stuff and you snapped them together and it had little plastic curtain walls pieces Mm -hmm. it was a toy to make skyscrapers that's all you did yeah is you would build a giant moment frame and snap curtain wall on it <laughs> that's, you know i need to go to the internet and see if i can't find that thing 
Yeah, I think I've seen it before, actually. You have to go to eBay and stuff to try to find it. Yeah, there's not many of them. Yeah, because nobody wants that toy. They're like, okay, I played with it five times. I'm done. I'm bored. How many skyscrapers can I build out of the same three pieces? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that my position on what do kids think about being an architect and, you know, is, is that a fantasy or is it aligned with reality is I'm not sure that anybody has strong opinions or even knows about it. At least, like I said, if you're over than 35 years old, nobody talked about it as far as I'm aware. Uh, the one thing I might say about that is that, you know, I've participated in, I mean, several actually program that we do here in my town and where we go to fourth grade classes. So that's a 10-year-old kid. We go to fourth grade classes for like eight weeks and do this architectural education program. Most of those kids have zero idea about what we do. I'm not sure if they know a lot more once we get done, but they have a little (laughs) bit of an idea about what what it is that we do, or at least we try to teach them all the stuff that we deal with as much as you can at a 10-year-old level. Right. So let's just segue into that next little block of our conversation, which is the exposure to architecture as a profession in lower education. Well, we wrote that down as a topic to discuss. I was like, well, there isn't any, right? Like nobody knows. And I went, well, that's not really true because I've sat in on a couple of juries for classes that are like steam classes mm-hmm. where they designed an Ikea type piece of furniture and they had to go through a whole process. So that was done here locally. Those were high school age kids that they would take this special class. It was something you had to opt into. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be more career based learning as opposed to core based learning. So I went on the internet and I was like, okay, well, let's see what I can find. So first off, the thing that I was most surprised at what I found was is the amount of homeschooling courses on architecture that are available. Like that didn't even dawn on me. That's a crazy thing. I hadn't even thought about that. Right. There are tons and tons and tons of homeschool courses that you can get for free or you can download or you can buy. They have like a whole kind of, let's start off with geometric shapes and then they evolve it. And like one of them, your final assignment was you designed a zoo. Wow. And this is homeschooling. Wow. Right? That looks pretty cool. Now, one of the things that I did notice, and I thought this was pretty amazing too, was one of the ones that was put together was called architecture. It's elementary. (laughs) And if I remember correctly, it just started a couple years ago and it's put together by the Michigan Architectural Foundation. Mm-hmm. And this is a six year lesson plan. And it starts with kindergarten and it goes through kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And they start off by saying, All right, well, kindergarten, they're going to cover things like geometric shapes and neighborhood walks and parks and playgrounds and building block town and human proportions, stuff like that. Mm hmm. And then in first grade, they move on to things like sensory exploration and visual skills and color, light, structures, and draw your own house from memory, proportions, and scale. This is first grade coursework that they put together. Yeah. Second grade, you ready for this? Animal houses, man-made structures, structural concepts. And I'm like, this is amazing. You know, that's second grade coursework, and you can get it for free. And then third grade is metric system and anthropomorphic buildings and different kinds of homes and materials. And then you get to design your own home in third grade. Mm -hmm. Fourth grade, they start getting a little bit bigger and they talk about neighborhoods and building types. You design a neighborhood in fourth grade. And then fifth grade is history of cities and politics. Get this, politics and economics of a city, city planning and preservation. 
and your design project is you design a city. Yeah. My mind is blown. That's funny. All that sounds similar to what we do in our eight-week time period. Yeah. We just kind of cram all that into eight weeks. Yeah. Because we start off with having them draw their own house from memory, and then we actually have them design a city, town, I guess. We give them like public Mm -hmm. buildings and residential spaces and all that kind of stuff. Like identify a school and a church and a library and a grocery store, like locate these things. Mm -hmm. We do this often. We have this standard template topography streets and a lake and all this kind of stuff and have them, they build a fire station or they model a little church, right? I mean, these pre-cut things that we have that they glue together. And then they, they get to arrange the town how they think it makes sense. We talk about those principles. Yeah. And then they get to design their own house and that's when the wheels come off. But (laughs) they've got things like anti-gravity rooms and, you know, my cotton candy cave and all these sorts of things. We're like, okay, that's fine. Have fun. Put a moat on it. That's what I would do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this one guy said, I got a submarine in my basement. (laughs) Yeah. To escape hatch. They're designing Bond villain homes. Yes, exactly. Almost all of them. So that was a bit of a surprise. Mm. So the program you're talking about, I know AIA Austin had a program like that for a while. I don't know if it's still running. I think a lot of AIA chapters have those sorts of things that they do. I'm not sure about the regularity with which keep them up. The one bad thing I would say about, and this is probably just a Texas thing, is that We have a hard time getting into public schools because they're so focused on the standardized testing. So we can't give you an hour a week because we just can't do it. That's bonkers. But, you know, I would imagine that the local AIAs have problems with is having consistent volunteers. Mm -hmm. Let's get the access to the kids out of the equation. Like, let's say that some classroom is enlightened enough to say we have some variety built into our coursework and we're not just about creating boilerplate standardized test robot students. Mm -hmm. But they have to rely on, it's a volunteer-based system. Mm -hmm. There's actually a program here in Louisville, and and it specializes in preparing students for a career as an architect while they're in high school. And it's the TECC East Architecture Studio, which is part of the Louisville ISD Career and Technical Education Program. And TECC stands for Technology Exploration and Career Center. So these kids go there. So this program is run by Chris Carson. And he's a licensed architect. He graduated from A&M, mm-hmm. got his master's at UT Arlington. And he teaches these kids in this career center. They come out of it knowing, hey, if I want to be an architect, I'm going to know a lot more about this. Pro- I bet they could answer who their five favorite architects are when they get done taking that class, you know? There's also the City Lab in Dallas. It has a strong architecture program. One of the committees that I oversee at the state AIA level is putting together this giant list. And I was really surprised of all of the public or private schools like in K through 12 that have some sort of architecture program in the state of Texas. They're working on this map and list. I was really surprised at how many of those things there actually are in the state of Texas. And not even just in large metropolitan areas like Dallas, Austin, Houston, but like all over the state. It blew my mind when they like showed me that map and there was dots all over the place. That, and now you can get exposure. It's funny to me you know, when I ask if my freshman students, if they've had any sort of architectural training, these days it's about half that said they took a architecture. They come in with some stuff. Yeah. You know, they took some kind of architecture class in high school. Some of them know like CAD and Revit already, at least in some extent. It's really kind of mind-blowing. And it's definitely not that way when you and I are in school, for sure. 
Yeah, those things didn't exist for sure. One of the things I think is kind of amazing is in 2018, 26,000 students were enrolled in NAAB accredited programs, mm-hmm. so National mm-hmm. Architectural Accrediting Board. 26,000. And I think that number is trending up. Yeah. And I have to think that it's because more people are presented with this as an option earlier. And what I don't know is if that's just based on maybe we should show some love to these terrible programs on home and garden TV or whatever, where there's these terrible design shows that every architect everywhere laments because it makes it look like you can do our job in 15 minutes and build it for $8 and it only takes three days for you to build a house. I'm wondering if that also has actually helped plant seeds in young people who are watching these programs possibly thinking, hey, that looks like a lot of fun. Maybe that's what I want to do. And they explore it. And that puts them on the path to go to architecture school. Yeah, that could be. I wouldn't doubt that. Really, if they watch that with their parents or on their own, see those kinds of things that happen. I mean, granted, yeah, you're right. The portrayal. There's that real disconnect that (laughs) that this episode is about. Maybe it's what we actually do and how long it takes and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think that could add to it as well. You know, the process and the programming that these students are putting. Well, let's just let's just do this. If you have the ability to share that information about all these different programs that are out there, you know, I'd like to see it. Yeah. Because again, maybe it's because like when I was doing this research, all this homeschooling stuff, the information that's readily available on the internet, most of these programs have started really within the last five or six years of all the ones that I looked at, like the Michigan Architectural Foundation curriculum that was K through five. That was started in 2018. That's relatively new. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these, they haven't been around for long enough, I think, for us to be filtering through as many students as, like, I think every year there's going to be more and more and more, as long as people still consider this a viable career path. No, I agree. Okay, so let's do this. Let's move on to the third silo that we're going to talk into in today's architectural disconnect. And it has to do with, what are the perceived skills needed to be an architect versus like the reality? And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, we all have these like kind of stupid stereotype things that are in our head that whenever we record these shows, I try to make sure that I'm not just bringing my own limited window of knowledge. Like I'm not mm-hmm. talking about 1986 to 1992 and they're like, that, bro, things have changed. Doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. So this morning, before we started recording, I took a quiz online to find out if I had the qualities to be an architect. Oh, yeah? You're going to have to send me that quiz. <laughs> and I had, there were 20 questions. It didn't work. Oh. Like, it, it said, okay, now, like, I hit final button, and then it, like, give you the three dots blinking, to, like it's calculating. And, like, 10 minutes later, it still couldn't figure out if I was going to be an architect or not. <laughs> you broke it. I, I'm like, maybe, I don't know. How am I... I've been practicing for a long time. Maybe I shouldn't have been, you know, (laughs) but there were questions on this test. Like, do you like to write or do you like standing in front of a large group of people and talking? Mm -hmm. And can you visualize things in three dimensions in your mind? And I started thinking, these are dumb questions. And the reason why they're dumb is because can you think of all the jobs where you don't like you're an architect, you're practicing architect that you don't need to get up and stand in front of a group of people and talk. I can loads of jobs. Mm. 
I know lots of architects that don't ever stand up in front of a room full of people to talk. True. And I know lots of architects that don't write. Very true. I guess maybe if you have to just lay it out there as a as general as possible. I mean, I think all those things would be if you were going to be a, like a sole practitioner, you'd have to do a lot of those things. If you were doing all of the stuff that an architect has to do. I mean, and I'm not saying even a sole practitioner has to do those things, but probably more of them than someone who works in an office of people where they can duck some of those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure. But well, let's say, you know, we used to have conversations about back in the day when you had guidance counselors in high schools and, you know, they would show up at the beginning of your senior year and say, all right, you need to come down and visit Miss Gerrymander or whatever. <laughs> and she's going to tell you what you should do. She's going to let you take that quiz. And, you know, and they'd say, oh, you'd make a great this, that, and the other. And you're like, I don't know what any of these things are. <laughs> like, it's just whatever. It's supposed to be the things that you have natural aptitudes toward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they all thought that, like, oh, you have to be really good at math to be an architect. Mm-hmm. And we would say, God, I wonder how many people got turned off architecture because their guidance counselor, who probably they themselves didn't understand what architects do, steered people away from it, not understanding that, guess what? You don't really have to be that great at math. You got to be good enough. If you master basic math, you're set. Yeah. My daughter's doing harder math now in 11th grade mm-hmm. than I did in college. My daughter is too, right? She's doing whatever calculus two or three or something. And I'm like, I'm sorry, baby. I can't help you with that. I don't know. <laughs> Look it up. Yeah. So uh, you don't have to be good at math, but that's certainly one of the perceptions. Or what about drawing, like hand sketching or drafting? Mm-hmm. I would say that it's a good skill to have, but it's certainly not something you have to be able to do. That's not a gatekeeper skill. It doesn't keep you out if you can't do those things. Because, yeah, I'll promise you, like, I mean, we've had a discussion before. I know a lot of architects that can't draw. I've had a lot of young architects come through my office that can't draw, but that doesn't mean they're not good architects right i mean but that's just not a skill that they possess it's not just young people i know some older architects that can't draw also yeah so it's not a it wasn't a knock well there's even with the proliferation and ease of software and the fact that now younger people are going into these college programs having already learned a bunch of software because that's how everything works now Mm -hmm. like my daughter's super tech savvy because that's just what it is I mean, she's been hauling around her own laptop to school since she was in seventh grade. Yeah. So learning software, second, it's second nature to them. I found another thing that I just Googled in one of the top deals on should I be an architect or can I be an architect? It was 10 signs that you should be an architect. And one of them that's really funny to me is that you have killer negotiation skills. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, really? What? Killer. Killer. Yeah. Mm. Not just negotiation skills. But they've got to be killer, yeah. Not just negotiation. They've got killer. And learning is fun for you. You have a scientific mind. You still like to play with blocks. You have a love of nature. It makes me laugh. Again, it's the things you find out there on the internet that are probably still not even quite true. I mean, this is not from an architecture thing. This is from something else, which is weird, but I'm not pulling up anything that was actually from an architecture side other than a couple of your things that showed up. And so, yeah, I think that's funny. Well, like, I'm sure airline pilots like nature. I mean, (laughs) I I know. Park rangers, I bet they love nature, too. Yeah, so, you know, you could be an architect slash park ranger slash airline pilot. Even though airline pilots are, like, dropping heavy fuel. They're carpet bombing everybody (laughs) with heavy fuel, but... Yeah. (laughs) I think there's some... I have a couple posts on my site about it. 
and we've we've talked about it a few times, like the different types of jobs and roles that people have in an architecture office are profound in their range and the skill sets needed and the interests that they support. You know, we have people that don't consider themselves designers and they don't want to be designers. They're like, that's not their jam. It's not what makes them happy. And for most people, when they think of architects now, they think you're this creative designer person. And I'm like, the percentages are most architects are not that person. Yeah. And it's maybe like 10% or so yeah. of the profession. Yeah. I, look, I came out of school and worked for years thinking that architects were like how they were perceived or at least how the students in my college classes perceived architects. That's still, I mean, through six years of architecture school, I graduated with an unrealistic impression of what it means to be an architect and what those jobs are. And I even worked in a couple of architectural offices. One of them was fairly large, you know, and I worked in the construction administration department one summer processing submittals. <laughs> it was agony. You still felt glamorous? and <laughs> I didn't, but I just thought, well, I don't want to say, you know, for all I know, those two guys still, well, one of them died. But, <laughs> but it was two guys. Yeah. Their CA department had two guys in it. And all I did was log in like submittals that came in for jobs. Grunt work. Yeah, it was grunt work. And I seem to recall that there were people that drew and I couldn't understand really what they were drawing still. I mean, it looked like architecture, but you know, this is after like my third year. And if I showed you something and it had a hatch pattern on it, I wouldn't have said, oh, that's plywood. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't learned that stuff yet. So everyone kind of seemed the same except for these two guys that I sat by. <laughs> and you know what? They were in the CA department, so of course they were different. Yeah, I was like, you looked at all the people you perceived as designers, and you sat over there with the two construction guys who you did not perceive as designers. Uh, yeah, I didn't yeah. even sit on the same side of like the building. As, <laughs> as all the cool kids? Yeah. I yeah. mean, and the funny thing is, is I seem to recall the two guys that worked in CA were the only two guys that wore cowboy boots as well. Mm-hmm. Right, they showed up to work in cowboy boots, and everyone else was wore like regular clothes. Yeah, not that cowboy boots aren't regular, but they're not necessarily the default. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I remember when I was in college, I went to a couple of TXA conventions when I was in college because they had like the alumni mixers, right? And I would go to those to just try to meet people and whatnot, professionals. And I always remember like being drawn to the people that weren't in cowboy boots and jeans and stuff. <laughs> I try to gravitate towards the guys that were in suits or that were like smartly dressed and stuff. Cause I was like, yeah, those are the real like designer people. <laughs> I mean, as stupid as that was. I was clearly oblivious to all that. Cause that, that sort of thing never entered my radar screen. You know, and the truth is, is all the other jobs I had until I graduated, they were all like in super small offices. Yeah. Right. So I didn't think about what the dude was yeah. wearing. Cause I go, well, that's just him. Right. That's not like necessarily what it is for all of them. Oh, I agree. I agree. But it's just that me, that perception, that stereotype about designer architects, they dress all cool and they're, they're not the normal average kind of person, which is totally false. It does. It makes zero difference what you wear about how your brain works. But at that point in time, the mentality was like, you got to be a a cool dresser and drive a Porsche 928 to be a good architect. For sure. You know what I'm saying? Yes. It's funny. This is a different architect, but I worked with another architect who had like a 1960-something 911 Porsche. Mm. It was a beautiful car. It was not a high-performance car by any stretch. I mean, it was 
you know, you know, and, and it was like cafe au lait brown. Oh, nice. You know, it was like this real pale tan, which was kind of cool, but also super boring. Like there was nothing <laughs> yep. like if it was red or green or something, you know, you'd look at it and go like Shazam. But it is like this really pale, creamy brown. I, it's, I look at it now and I go, it's classic for sure. And I was like, oh, man, it's brown, though. But at the time you're like, God, this dude is bland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's funny. He, so clearly the skills that people think you need to have to be an architect, we should even go so far as to say to be a successful architect. Yeah. Are, well, they're all over the place. And that's the thing that I wonder about. Like these tests, you know, it's one thing to take a test and goes, oh, you should go into sales, <laughs> you know, or you should become some kind of doctor or whatever. You know, I don't, I haven't taken one of these tests in a long time, so I don't know if they've evolved much, but I can't think of one test that would give you a yes or no on whether or not you would be a good fit for an architectural career because we got CA, we got spec writers, I got project architects and project managers and project designers, and they're all so different mm -hmm. that they would all have wildly different scores on any type of aptitude test that would try to be a predictor for whether or not they're going to be good at their job. I mean, I think it goes back to that thing. If, if you think it's something you want to do, there's a place for you. No matter what your skill set or personality type is, there's probably a place for you in the profession. Yeah. Do you ever think about when you were in school and you're looking at your classmates and you go, well, that guy right there, he's terrible. <laughs> you know, there's people that you measure yourself against yeah. and you go, okay, there's like three people that are really good in this class. And there's like five or six that are towing the line. And those three over there, they're just bad. Mm -hmm. And you think like these three are good architects. They're passable architects. They shouldn't even be in architecture school, right? Those ones over there. Mm -hmm. But now fast forward and you go, well, those two guys are running companies. And, you know, it, there used to be that phrase that the A students became professors. The B students became project managers. The C and D students became project designers. <laughs> you know, like maybe they're just off the beaten path enough to be more interesting as they got older. I don't know what it was. Yeah. I'm surprised at how often that's actually become true. Interesting. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of, it's funny. I think that to me, most of the, in the way that I always thought about it was that like, yeah, the A students might become professors or actually project designers. The B students would just be architects and the C students would be like project managers or administrative corporate level people that, because they were good at managing things. They may not be the most creative, but they were the ones that seemed like, like there was two kinds of people that were what you ought to consider bad. The ones that just couldn't do things and the ones that just really did things sort of very linearly and in order and they got their stuff done. They didn't spend a lot of time in studio. They were just down to business and they were like in and out. Yeah. Those people ended up being moving up the chain somewhere and they probably ended up being the A student's boss at some point because they were, yeah, they were doing that kind of stuff. But yeah. Yeah. Similar idea though. Yeah. And that actually seems to be true a lot of times because most successful firms are not run by the creative types. They're run by the people that think more linearly. Yeah. Right. But they still understand architecture. I mean, it's not that they don't understand the process and don't know it very well. It's just they have a different way of using it, right? Well, if you have a, a larger than small, I'm not going to say how small, but if you have enough people to where you have accounting people or HR people or marketing people, whatever, if you're in a firm that, that's at least that size, then that can be as small as 25, mm -hmm. 30 people. If you're in a firm that size, 
you have people that end up specializing in what they do. The small firm has the generalist, the jack of all trades, the inch deep, mile wide skill set. You have those people in small firms. Mm -hmm. And in big firms, you have the inch wide, mile deep specialist and the people that are like, this is what I do and I'm really good at it. And they're at a point to where they're good at it and that's what makes them successful because they're successful. That's what they like. You know, it's kind of this Mm self-fulfilling prophecy that you're going to be successful if you're doing what you like. And if you're doing what you're like, you're going to be successful, right? Like they both go kind of part and parcel with one another. So let's move on to this. Let's talk about what is school like versus the professional work environment? You know, since we just got through labeling based on your grades, what your future is going to look like. There you go, kids. <laughs> you're already set. <laughs> yeah, you know what you're walking into here. And so if you want to do one of those things and adjust your grades accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know what's coming for you. Yeah. So I wrote down a list of things that I thought, like, what's the difference? What's the difference between school and professional work environment? And so I wrote down three things that I thought, or well, there's actually about five or six, but <laughs> so one of them was the speed at which problems are solved. Oh yeah. In the office versus at school. For sure. I would say if I had to put like a ratio to it, I'd say 10 to one. Yeah, probably. For every 10 minutes I spend on a problem in my office, I would spend an hour and a half <laughs> when I was in school on that problem. Yeah. And it's funny to watch that transition. And part of it is you just get faster because you've done it enough times and you don't have to go all the way down a thought process to know that this is not going to get you where you need to be. Sometimes. That's part of it, yeah. That manifests itself at some level. But then there's also the idea that, and I was trying to figure out how to articulate this. And it had to do with, like, I worked more in my architectural studio than I do in my real office. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. And I was like, the difference is, is when I show up to work here now as a professional, I work. Sometimes. <laughs> you know, I have my walking around a little bit and water cooler chatter. Yeah. You know, like five minutes out of every hour spent, you know, telling some fishing story. Yeah. But that ratio when I was in school would be like one hour of work, one hour of something else. <laughs> you know, one hour of walking to go get a coffee with everybody or one hour of looking at somebody else's project or one hour of talking about some kind of theoretical what ifs that really didn't have anything to do. I mean, that was kind of the culture of being in a creative design studio. Mm-hmm. It made that process rewarding. So, and we would have some guys that had work experience. They came back to school for one reason or another, and they would show up in the building at like eight o'clock in the morning and they would leave and you never saw them at night and you never saw them on the weekend. They treated architecture studio like it was a job Mm -hmm. and they never pulled all nighters. That was not a necessity. Yeah. That was a, something that people like me sometimes had to do because studio was our life. It was my social environment. Yeah. It's where my friends were. Yeah. So it wasn't just going up, put your head down and work and then leave. Yeah. When I was in grad school, cause I went straight through like right from my undergrad to graduate school. And in my program, I was one of maybe four out of the, I think, 35 or something. I mean, I dealt with that a lot in grad school. I was always amazed at how the people that had been working for, you know, five, 10 years that had come back to grad school were like so much further along in their process than I was at the same point in time, right? You know, they're like, dude, how do you already have like, you know, you hack it all figured out. It's that, that's whole thing, right? About they know how to do it and they've, they've changed their pace of work. Which is, again, about that time, right? The pacing is so much different. It's a lot different. Okay, so then another thing was things like budget 
and deadlines as drivers of the design process. Yeah. I can tell you right now, I didn't think about budget on anything I ever did when I was in school. Yeah. Not ever. And now that it's a reality. You have to do it in a professional job. I mean, you have to think about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's one of the main drivers. Oh, in a lot of cases, not all the time. That's the funny thing. I think it's hard to get students to realize is that even all the stuff in the magazine, they had budget problems. Yeah. Even if it was $500 a square foot, guess what? They were designing it for $700 a square foot. And yeah. so they still had to cut stuff and change their ideas and deal with all of it. Yeah, it's a reality. Yeah. I sit there and think, only once in my life have I had a project where budget was not a consideration. But I still made it a consideration. I was designing a pool cabana for this couple. Mm-hmm. And the husband never came to the meetings, like, <laughs> ever. Yeah. And the meetings were in his house, right? So he was in the house. <laughs> he just... He just didn't even bother to walk down the hall. No, he just wasn't a part of it. Yeah. And the wife, she really liked stainless steel. And so if it was up to her, this would have been a stainless... Everything would have been stainless steel. The whole thing would have been stainless steel. <laughs> and so we would have conversations about... Like, hey, if we just wallpaper everything with stainless steel, this special material won't feel very special because we've just, like, just put it everywhere. Like, it's not... Abused it, yeah. Yeah. It's just, we haven't celebrated it as a material. So we're having this conversation. This was a consideration we had on many times. And so it's a longer story than I'm going to share it all today. But at one point, she's telling me she wants to do something. And I was like, well, we really think that's a good idea because I'm trying to not, like, just go bonkers spending money. (laughs) And the husband happened to walk by as I'm responding to her question about, hey, can we do this thing? He goes, hey, Mr. Architect, you got a minute? Like, I'm not sure he knew my name. And he goes, hey, Mr. Architect, do you got a minute? And he sat down and he goes, I heard you talking about the budget with my wife. And I appreciate that. So let me let me lay this out in a way that will maybe make this easier going forward. If we want it, it's in the budget. All right, good talk. And he got up and left. (laughs) And to this day, it's the most expensive. I mean, I think this cabana ended up costing around $1,300 a square foot to build. Oh, Jesus. Now, it was only about 620 square feet, right? So that kind of adds to it. Yeah, but still, I mean, God bless. It was amazing. Yeah, I'm sure. And part of what made it expensive is it started off when we got hired. They had a pool guy who was working. He was doing a pool for him. And she goes, hey, can you put a glass canopy over here? And he goes, no, I build pools. Yeah. He goes, you need an architect. Here, call this guy. He's awesome. He gave her my number. And she called me and she goes, hey, can we do this? And I was like, yeah, of course. And then next thing you know, hey, can we put a grill in? And then maybe like an outdoor shower. Then, oh, it gets hot. Maybe we should have like a room that you could go inside that would have air conditioning to it. And then, oh, well, if we're going to have that room, maybe we should have another room that has like towels in it, right? For the pool. Yeah. And we don't want to be carrying those in the house. So we need to have like a washer dryer in there. And well, what if you want a snack? So maybe there should be like a little kitchen area. And I mean, this is just, and it turned in this building. And then one day, like it's framed, it's framed. And they call me up and they're like, Hey, uh, I think I want to put a bedroom in there. Cause it's so nice. I think taking a nap out there would be great. And I was like, we don't have any room to put a bedroom. So it turned into a two story cabana. All of a sudden. Oh, my God. So he could have a nap. And then they called me up later and they're uh, like, hey, you know what would be really awesome? I'd like to have like a bathtub. Like this space up on the second floor is amazing. Can we get a bathtub up here? 
I was like, no, the bathroom, our footprint is built. We don't have space. And I go, the only way we can put a bathtub is if we put it in the bedroom. He's like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's do that. Done. <laughs> Done. And so, and think about trying to add like an 800 pound point load. Cause like bathtubs are heavy. Oh yeah. Right. They weigh a lot. And then when you fill them full of water and then you put a 200 pound body inside that bathtub of water, I mean, it, it comes kind of heavy and trying to like mm-hmm. slip in additional floor joists to carry this bathtub. And then, so the stair that goes from the ground to the second floor, it was 100% stainless steel. Stainless steel treads, stainless steel mesh on the outside, everything. The stair cost about $150,000. Good Lord. It's crazy. It was awesome. It was so awesome. (laughs) You get out of the bathtub on that and you're going to break your neck sliding down to the bottom. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is that project actually got published on Arc Daily. Really? As a modern cabana. That's funny. Yeah, so that was the only project in my lengthy career that literally didn't seem to have any budget, but everything I work on now is a budget consideration. I probably spend at least 20% of my time consciously making moves to deal with either budget issues or the perception of budget issues. Yeah. So that's one of them. For sure. Another one I had on my list was team environment. This might be a little different. You and I have actually talked about this a few times. Like, I really hate as an employer trying to evaluate recent graduates' Mm -hmm. portfolios when all the work is teamwork. Mm -hmm. And I go, I don't know what you did. Maybe these other three people on this team were amazing, and you were the dead weight that they had to carry. But I can't tell that because, you know, how would I know? Mm -hmm. I don't like team projects in a school environment, quite honestly. But the reality is, is team environments in the professional environment is the norm. Very rarely does somebody design in an island or drawings get put together by one person. Yeah, but the difference that I find in, again, that's one of the reasons why academia seems to always be pushing for like group projects and all these sorts of things, because they say that's how the real world is. But the problem I find with it is that, I mean, that scenario is not the real world, because in the real world, there are people that have certain roles that are all working together. And when students try to do projects together, they're all trying to fill the same role. Yes, that's a good way to put it. And so that's why it gets really complicated and complex, because they all have the, the same skill set. They're all coming from the same viewpoint. And that's not how it works in professional teams. Everybody's got a specific role that they're playing and they know what their job is. It's a team. It's not a group of people all trying to play the same position. Right. It's a completely different environment, even if you try to set it up that way. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point to make. The way I wrote that down on my list is that most people aren't actively designing. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that, all right, if there's 10 defined roles or tasks on a project, more times than not, those tasks are done either with one or two people per silo of task. You might have two designers on a project, but there's like really a primary and a secondary. Yeah. So there creates this kind of hierarchy. So somebody's always accountable or responsible or subservient to another. So you don't have this. Well, we're both in fourth year, and your opinion's not better than mine, and right, this kind of inherent clash mm-hmm. that could be built into the academic oh yeah system, which happens all the time. I'm sure it does, and as a professor, I'm sure you have to play you know timeout cop sometimes with these kids. Yeah, I, I get to be mediator more than I want to be, but yes. I also I try so hard not to do group work just for that reason. I personally realize it's not, they're not getting the benefit out of it as, as they much as they could if we said, all right, well, we're going to get kids from 
four different colleges together to do a project. We're going to get a landscape kid. We're going to get a construction science kid from across the hall. Then we're going to design a project and do it that way. That's more realistic. Yeah. But that sort of cross-pollination stuff is really difficult to master. Yeah. And also because of the flip side, I'm like you, right? What I've been sitting there looking at potential employees' portfolios, and it's full of stuff, and they none of it are they the sole author of. And so you have zero clue about their skills. Yeah. That's a tough one. Well, we already touched on the last one before we get into the last bit of today's episode. The last one on my list, which we kind of already talked about a little bit, had to do with when I said... I wrote work more in studio than in a real office, but I guess that's not really how I mean it. I spent more time in the studio, like as far as like, here's all the hours of my life. And I spent a disproportionate Mm -hmm. percentage of those hours of my life when I was in school in studio than I do now. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if I spend 40 hours, 50 hours a week working, I probably say based on my timesheet, I put in 50 to 55 hours every week. That's Boca Pal work. Mm-hmm. But maybe, maybe 40 of that to 45 of that's in the office. I do a lot of stuff that's not in the office as well. Yeah. I probably spent at least that much time, if not more, when I was in studio, but I definitely didn't work as many hours in studio as I do in the real world. Yeah. You spent a lot of time there, but you weren't spending as much time yeah. working. Yeah. It was like, it was like the clubhouse. Yeah. And, you know, and that was the thing that many, many years ago, I wrote a couple of posts about the desk of an architect and I had architects send me like pictures of their work desk. And then it turned into, okay, students, now it's your turn. Send me pictures of your student work desk. Mm-hmm. And it was like people's dining room table, or it was like a picture of a laptop sitting on like, obviously what would be a college glass table in front of their couch. Like it wasn't like a real desk. Mm-hmm. The perception, or at least the way I kind of took it was studio culture seems to be dying a bit that now 100 percent, yeah like now people are on laptops they can do a lot of the work wherever they want at their house or whatever it is wherever they want and you couldn't a hundred percent of the work that got done when i was in school was in the studio yeah yeah i mean unless you were one of those weird kids that packed everything up and toted it home you know and then brought it back the next day i don't know anybody who did that yeah nobody did that there was a few when i was in school like at least one per studio where they did all their work at home. And so they'd kind of pack things up and trudge back and forth, which to me was crazy. That is crazy. Because, yeah, you'd have, you'd have crap all over the place, right? I mean, you'd have so much stuff spread out. You'd have a desk that had drawings on it and another desk that had models on it and all that kind of stuff. And there was no way you were moving it around. Yeah. Well, there, it led to an immersion of architecture and the whole architectural experience, at least from a design culture standpoint, because... Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of times that like I would present my project to five or six or seven people in the studio all the time. I mean, that's beyond pinups. Just like, hey, Jill, can you come over here and look what I'm doing? Can I get your opinion on something? And we would talk through it. And there's a kind of a reciprocity that would happen. So if I spend an hour or two or three drawing, I might spend another hour or two going through my project with somebody else, looking at their project, giving them feedback. And it was just kind of like this student-to-student desk crit culture that was pervasive when I was in school. And I'm not sure it's still like that as much. I don't think that it is, especially when everything is on the computer. You know, I try to sometimes, let me say that that happens more often when you're making kids build models. Mm -hmm. That really does have to happen in studio. They seem to be more there building things in person than any other time. But nowadays, it's still pretty rare that students are required to build models. 
which I think is unfortunate. I was teaching the fourth year. I was one of the few people that in this fourth year, kind of like the capstone idea of a project, I was the only professor that made students build models of their work. Hmm. And to me, that was really important. I mean, they didn't have to build a full model. They were building like wall section models and those kinds of things. But I was still like the only person that had that. And so I was happy. And at that point, all my students were up in studio at their desks building stuff and doing things. And it looked like a normal studio where there was junk everywhere and there was activity all the time. That's a real rarity these days, it seems like, which is unfortunate. One of the things that I would throw out for why you should build models too, and I'd say this from an employer's standpoint, is I can look at a model of a terribly designed building and still learn something about you as a person based on how you built the model. I can look at your craft. I can look at your attention. I can see like how are the edges made? Did they get glued together properly? Is there like there's so many things I can learn by how you build a model that has nothing to do with like what the model is of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, so I went to the University of Arkansas for a career fair thing. And it's one of those schools where like everybody's portfolio of work includes the same projects. I don't know why this is, but like everybody had the same five projects in their portfolio. Mm. Everybody did. And so after you've seen like five or six or seven or eight of them, <laughs> you start going, well, wow, they're better than that one. <laughs> You start to be able to like slot people based on how they responded to this exact same problem. Mm -hmm. But they ended up doing this, I don't know, urban natatorium weird thing. And it was all these different kind of pools in this building. And they had to do a poured concrete model of this building. Wow. And you can look and see, and they weren't big. They were these little cube type things. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were eight by eight or something like that. But you could look and see how the craft on these concrete models were. And it would tell you about who they are as a person. Like how much time did they spend getting their form work correct? And once it came out, did they sand it down or did they get rid of the bad spots? Or Yeah. You can learn something regardless of what the project was. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So since we're, we're in it for a ways, you know, we covered a lot of territory today, but it's time to wrap up this portion of the episode and move on to this episode's Would You Rather question. Which, when I selected this question for today, I go, this is the obvious answer. Uh-oh. And I have since started to think that maybe I, I might not be thinking it through, my answer. I might be wrong about this. I don't think I am, as of this moment, but we'll see. <laughs> have you seen the question yet? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm curious to hear what you thought there was a complete right answer, because I'm like torn. Automatically, I'm torn. So. Yeah, I think I got the right answer. So. Okay. I know it's the right answer for me. So here's the question. Would you rather have a photographic memory or an IQ of 200? There it is. So do you want me to break down some logic for you first, or you just want to blurt your answer out and then have me destroy you? Uh, mm. Give give me your answer first. Yeah, that's the problem is I can't, because now even sitting here, I've changed my mind about it. Man, I guess I'll go with IQ of 200. That's the wrong answer. Oh, that was my <laughs> second choice. My initial gut choice was photographic memory, but just sitting here thinking about it, like, well, that doesn't really necessarily mean I can correlate things and put things together. Having a photographic memory, at least when I thought about it, my first thought was like, yes, because then I can recall like anything. In my day-to-day life, that would probably be the best thing, a photographic memory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But having an IQ of 200, 
really makes me think about being able to make connections between things and find new relationships and expand my knowledge or expand just knowledge in general, which having a photographic memory doesn't really do that. Yeah. Maybe that's why I chose IQ of 200 in the end. But the photographic memory is super appealing. Well, okay. So photographic memory, I think, is the way to go on this one. But did a little research, as you know, I like to do. Mm -hmm. After I chose my answer and I started going, well, maybe I didn't choose this correctly. So standard IQ, like average IQ is 100, just to put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. And there's slight variations, but generally speaking, anything around 132 to uh, 140, anything over that is genius level. Genius level. Yep. Genius level IQ. And so I looked up and said, what are the best IQs? Like, well, who has the, like, the highest IQ? And there's some dispute to this, but like, there's a lot of people that have IQs that are like Copernicus or Galileo. And they're like, Galileo obviously didn't take an IQ test, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But they say, we project his IQ to be 180. Yeah. Or they'll say Einstein's IQ is 160. That's what they said his was. Hmm. So clearly you can do rather spectacular things well below the 200 mark. Yeah, sure. And they even had some people identified that had, like there's some kid right now that they think his IQ is like 268. Oh, good Lord. Which is crazy. They show him he's in a, like a lab coat and he's nine years old kind of thing. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and there was that, in that movie, Goodwill Hunting, mm -hmm. that was a real dude. Yeah. He got accepted into Harvard, I think when he was nine years old, but for college, but they're like, you're too young. So he had to go back when he was 11. <laughs> that's funny. It's not really much difference between 9 and 11. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So I went with photographic memory because, one, my IQ's all evidence notwithstanding is already pretty good. I'm feeling pretty comfortable with where I'm at mm -hmm. currently with my IQ. Yeah. But my memory is the thing that I worry about losing it. Mm -hmm. I don't like forgetting things. And I do. Yeah. You know, and I, I could see that for you. I forget people's names. Yeah. And I, I go, I would love to be able to all the things that I was exposed to. If I could just remember that, then I would actually be able to take more advantage of the horsepower I already have. Yeah. I don't need 30 points higher to do something. I mean, I like what I do. I feel like I'm pretty good at it. And I go, would I be better at it if I had a higher IQ? Probably not. I'd probably just be better if I could remember to do all the stuff I should be doing. Is that an implication that your IQ is at 170 right now? No. <laughs> You said, I don't need it to be 30 points higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So I, well, I was going to say, I know what my IQ is because my mom was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, I probably had my IQ tested about 50 times mm. because all her teacher friends, when they were trying to get diagnostician certificate, they would have to practice. Oh, uh-huh. And so my mom offered up her kids to all these teacher buddies of her all the time to be their <laughs> their lab rats for their diagnostician licenses <laughs> and so i have dozens of like real iq tests that's funny and what was interesting is i wrote a post about iqs like it's like the third post i ever wrote mm -hmm. on my site and it was uh, one of the things they talk about with iqs is that they don't really deviate you know as you age like you take different there's different types of iq tests Mm -hmm. That a kid takes versus a grown up takes. But I ended up taking an IQ test as part of a, you know, since I have ADHD, one of the indicators to diagnose ADHD is an IQ test mm -hmm. because they're looking at the, the difference between like the two deviations in the test. You know, to get like a composite score, you get this score and then you get that score. They put them together and they go, okay, that means your IQ is X. 
And if you have more than 10 points variance between mm -hmm. the two halves, that's an indication that your brain is not firing correctly as an indicator. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I have all these tests from when I was like 9, 10, 11, and 12. And then I have one when I was 34, and they were two points different, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like, they don't change much. Yeah, that is interesting. So, yeah, I would just like to remember stuff. You're born with however smart you are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now that you mention it, I don't want a higher IQ because I'm unhappy with my IQ. I just feel like that that would be maybe more productive. But that may be because I'm not at a point where I feel like I forget a lot at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I know you're in that vein of, you know, worrying about those kinds of things as you age. I'm just not quite there yet. my biggest fear. Oh, my God. It's all I worry about. I know I'm getting close, but... And that might change my perspective. But I, I do think, again, I think if it was like, if nothing about my life was going to change in one of these things I would choose, then yeah, I would probably choose the photographic thing just because that would improve my daily life yeah, 100%. But if I wanted to change my life with this question, then it would be the 200 level IQ, I think. But then again, maybe not. Because then maybe you just feel like you're surrounded by idiots nonstop. <laughs> you know, that would be the downside to having a... <laughs> Everybody you talk to, you'd be like, God, you're so stupid. You're so stupid. Like, oh, God, could you? Everything they say is like, could you just get to the point? I know, right? <laughs> I've already got there. I feel like I complain enough about the level of intelligence of people around me. It would only get worse. <laughs> that would be rough. You know, and if you look at the jobs, like the type of career paths that people have these ridiculously high IQs, I don't want to do mm -hmm. any of that stuff. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about you that. Know, that's not something that I have an interest in. Yeah, so... So did you settle on... So maybe I flip-flop back and go with photographic memory as well. Photographic memory? Yeah, maybe I think that's the right yeah, answer. I think it's the right answer. All right, there you go. Photographic memory is the correct answer. So there you go. Another amazing show completed. I hope you'd enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you for being with us today for episode 72, Architectural Disconnect. We would like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get sizzling hot new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would also leave us a five-star, I'm much better at math than I need to be rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this wonderful episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.